first and first, Eddie, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. As a matter of fact, I'm blessed, and uh, it's a beautiful day. And as we used to say, I'm six feet above ground. So <laughs> That's very good to hear. <laughs> um, before we delve into the music that you've been working on lately, I'd, I'd like to go back to the beginning. Now, I was just mentioning uh, Michigan to you uh, uh, before I turned the camera on. Mm-hmm. Now, I would say, and I don't know how you see, see this, but your time uh, at uh, Michigan State University and, and kind of developing yourself as an artist at that point seemed a very important period for you in your life. Is that, is that fair to say? I think it's important for anyone at that age. You're developing as a young adult. You're in school. You're developing crafts. You're being trained for your you know, perhaps your future lot in life. You're seeing that your horizons are being broadened. Um, Being in a university situation, it puts you in contact with people that were not from your neighborhood, but sometimes from the other side of the world. Um, And you're being exposed to a lot of different philosophies. You're certainly being pushed greater uh, in your academia. You know, you're learning Mm -hmm. that Maybe if you were able to skate through in high school, you can't necessarily do that when you reach university level. So you're learning, you're growing, you're experiencing, and that's what life does for all of us at that point. For you then, as Teddy, the guitarist, uh, songwriter, musician, Mm -hmm. what was it for you like? Did did you have kind of a a feeling of of, uh, what you wanted to do in life or did that come later? Yeah, well, I've had a feeling of what I wanted to do, but that didn't mean, firstly, I could do it. (laughs) Talent somewhere has to happen in there. And secondly, there was no guarantee that I would be able to succeed to any degree with it. You know, you can have a burning desire to do something, and sometimes opportunities in life just don't present themselves. Or you can have a a burning desire to do something and you might fall short in the way of ability. So I've known since I was a little child, um, since I was four or five, um, that I always wanted to be an entertainer or be involved in production or entertainment. Um, The first memory that I have of that was for my fifth birthday, I received uh, it's, it's a Dr. Seuss book. It's called My Book About Me. And in this book, you write down all the little things that you know at that point. Hello, my name is Theodore. Am I a boy or am I a girl? I am a boy. I live on a street, and the name of my street is Larchmont. And it is how many steps from my front door to the tree? It is 15 steps. Um, and it's got, you know, all these just little things that you write down about yourself and your small world at that point. And one of the questions comes up, it says, uh, you know, it has a series of occupations, astronaut, bank attendant, cashier, uh, you know, and so on. You know, there must have been a hundred occupations and you're supposed to choose one of those occupations that's written there that says, when I grow up, I want to be, and there's a line for you to write down out of those occupations, but 
I chose to write down like a man named James Brown. <laughs> so, <laughs> not a bad choice. Not a bad choice. And of course, I'm not growing up and being like a man named James Brown. I'm certainly in my own ilk and my own niche, but the idea is understood. But you, you, you mentioned something uh, important because obviously you're uh, from a musical family. Did, did you know you could sing? I still don't know it. <laughs> I am not a singer and I am not from a musical family. My mother is quite prominent and will always be. Her her talents and abilities will resonate for generation and perhaps for time to come. Um, but I was raised with my father and it was an academic household. And my two sisters and I, uh, there was no singing in the house. There was just regular enjoyment of music. Uh, I had an inside burning desire to be in a band and to play a guitar, but it wasn't a musical family like most people think of it. Right. You know, I grew up in a house that was more uh, pushing uh, the importance of, of reading the book and doing well in academia and finding your way in life in a field other than entertainment and music because as you know entertainment is great for the listener and it's wonderful for an audience to come and see but it's a cutthroat business uh it's quite dangerous you know what it does to your ego and psychologically it's left a lot of people in bad shape um and countless uh, artists with great talent who don't have any money because they signed the wrong contract, because some other entity told them one thing, they signed a piece of paper and signed away perhaps millions of dollars worth of... Uh, so my father did not want me to be involved in something that was that risky. Um, to have a degree and to move forward in life with some greater certainty and guaranteeing yourself a check, and as he would call it, writing your own ticket. Uh, was far more sensible. And he's right. Um, and he always explained to me, though, hey, you know, that guitar playing thing you're doing, if you continue to do it, that's great. And if one day you find that there's an opportunity and you're able to make something successful happen out of it, that's wonderful. But if it doesn't, you will have a degree and it has nothing to do with music. So. Right. And so, so. And I believe you graduated in psychology, if I'm not mistaken. My master's. My undergrad was uh, uh, telecommunications. Okay. Then I went back and did my master's in clinical psych. So, so was it one of those things then? Because obviously you love music. So, so once that was done, did you kind of go, okay, uh, but I still would like to play the guitar? Or did you venture into prospects uh, of, of employment in those areas? I played the guitar all along. Uh, even when I was told by my dad not to. <laughs> uh, so I quietly was in a band while I was in college. And um, it didn't get in the way of anything at all. It actually was a perfect uh, departure from studying. And it allowed me to make friends uh, that were also music lovers like myself. Um, but the entire time that I was in high school, the entire time that I was in college, the entire time that I've also, while I've maintained regular 
nine to five jobs and things like this, I always had some music as an outlet at some given point in the day or the week. I could always look forward to a, a band rehearsal or an upcoming performance at a, a high school prom or something like that. Uh, there was always something going on uh, musically. And I'm glad that I was able to do that. It certainly broadened my horizons. It allowed me to develop as a guitar player. It allowed me to be in recording and production situations. And without those things, I wouldn't be half of what I am now. And there's still more to come. I'm still growing. Sure. And when, when in this kind of period or timeline uh, is perhaps the better word, when in this timeline uh, did you start writing songs? Was that straight from the beginning? No. Uh, around, uh, let's see, that would have been my sophomore year at Michigan State. Okay. Uh, I was in a band called The Preps. And we were very popular with the uh, the fraternities and the sororities. Um, and that was kind of our market. We played uh, the uh, East Lansing High School graduation party, uh, Okemos, which was a city next to East Lansing. That was kind of our little, little area. At that time, <clears throat> I wanted to play more professionally in bars and playing with people that were starting to write music and people that seemed more genuine and that weren't doing it like a weekend warrior, if you will. Yeah. Um, to me at that time, it seemed like what we were doing was wonderful and we were, it was pretty lucrative, but it also was not being a full-fledged musician or somebody committed to their uh, their art. But I was also fortunate at that time frame. I was able to kind of segue comfortably into playing in bar land, if you will. Um, the modern English came to town, and I was able to, because I knew somebody who knew the owner of the club, I was able to get on board as an opening act with my band, The Preps. Also, there was a, another, uh, uh, Tony Carey, uh, and his band was called Planet P. They had one radio song at the time. Uh, we were able to open for Tony Carey. We did the opener for Modern, Eng you know, Modern English, I'll Stop the World and Meld With You, uh, opening for them, <clears throat> which it allowed me to kind of, again, expand what I was doing. By that time, this group, the Preps, we had probably done as much as we were going to do, and our keyboard player said, look, I'm going to work for a bank. There's not enough money trying to do what we're doing as a band. Uh, and that was just a, you know, a, a bombshell for, for the Preps. But at the same time, it allowed me to comfortably now start my own group and uh, start a group called Drums and Wires, which was named after an XTC song or an XCC album, excuse me. And uh, then we started doing more openers. We did Red Hot Chili Peppers. We did Fishbone. Uh, and by that time, I was able to parlay, you know, a, a, a semi-tour with Fishbone, uh, basically just by asking them, hey, great show tonight. Where do you guys play tomorrow night? 
Like, oh, well, we're playing in Lancaster. So I'd call Lancaster and go, uh, yes, uh, good morning. This is uh, Teddy Richards, the opening act for Fishbone. I understand uh, we're in Lancaster tonight. What time do we load in? <laughs> and uh, people were like, you who? And you did. I'm like, the opening act. Uh, I need to know what time we load in. Give me an address. And nine times out of ten, it worked. So I would drive another 200 miles. I'd get there before Fishbone. I'd set up. They would walk in and go, what are you doing here? We played with you last night, 200 miles ago. I go, yeah, I know, I know, I know. So, again, I was learning, I was growing, and I was making a real bid for it. Yeah, and I think uh, that the example that you that you give, the, the DIY mentality or, or that assertiveness in a sense, uh, yeah. from what I gather is very important. You mentioned the volatility of the music industry and, and that kind of uh, persistence or, or determination is very important. So was that always with you? Did, did, were you always kind of, did you always have a good work ethic? Uh, I've always had a super strong work ethic and I've always enjoyed projects like that where you're not sure how it's going to go, but you know that you can give it your full-fledged effort and you're going to do everything that you can to make something good come out of it. Um, I've always enjoyed that. I am I, right now. I'm still, you know, very much a DIY mentality person. Uh, my greatest success with that came shortly after what I was just telling you about. Um, at the time, there was Borders Books and Music, sure. which was a national book entity, kind of like uh, like Barnes and Noble uh, here in the states. And uh, I had a friend uh, who played bass with me from time to time. He had a band. Uh, Soul Click was their group. And he says, oh, you know, we played Borders last night. I said, oh, I didn't know that they had music at Borders. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. They, on the weekends they do. So I said, great. I called the closest Borders, which would have been the Oakland Mall. And I said, yes, good morning. I'm working with a friend of mine, Joe Hayden, and I understand that his group Soul Click played there last night. He recommended that I speak directly with you so that I can book my group. And again, the people said, uh, who did a what? I wanted you to call who? But none, nonetheless, they said, okay, great. You know, they gave me a date. Um, and I was able to then finish that performance and say to the manager, where's the next closest borders to here? So I did the entire state of Michigan. When I finished Michigan, I said, if I leave Michigan, I want to go into Illinois. Where is Borders there? And 40 shows later, you know, I had found it. Oh, my God, I got a business running here. And by that time, I had put my little indie CD, which is called Sonic Bloom, and put that together. And after about the 10th show, I explained to them, that it was mandatory that the store, each store, buy 15 units. <laughs> so I'm being paid for the performance. I sell off 15 units. Of course, they would sell out instantly, and you had another 15 in the car. So I really, I again, I just learned how to do that. And working within that parameter was very successful. I had very little, you know, competition because – everyone else wanted to play at the club and everyone else wanted to play at the restaurant. So 
I was left with an entire market that I kind of created on my own. And that was really encouraging for me. And what I find really admirable about what you mentioned now and kind of the way you've done things. And I suppose this is uh, in talking to you, instilled into you by your father's principles as well. But I mean, you could have easily used uh, your mother's name to, to further your career, but you wanted to make uh, your own path. You wanted to forge your own path. Why was that so important? Well, because as a man, that's what you do. You don't ride anyone else's coattails. And that's probably one of the most important things that my father taught me. But he also taught me, hey, that's your mother. You're not going to be able to run from that and hide from it. But at the same time, what's most important is that you handle your business. Uh, and as he used to say, if you're looking for a helping hand, start by looking at the end of your wrist. Um, and if I had also chosen to um, involve her name more, uh, the few times where I didn't involve her name, but where people found out, it always ended up negative. It always ended up very poor. Um, I, at one point, I had decided to stop performing because of situations. And I had a few of these where uh, I had a booking agent at one time. He booked me into a middle Michigan uh, tourist town. And uh, I was sold to the, uh, to the venue as this is going to be Aretha Franklin's son coming in. And um, so when I arrived in town, uh, they had a large marquee, one of these marquees that's on wheels. And you have a, a trailer hitch, you know, and you drop the thing off. And it says live Friday and Saturday in great big letters, Aretha Franklin's son. And then in little tiny letters, it said, Teddy Richards. So I said, oh, boy, this isn't going to go well. And sure enough, um, we had probably played two songs. Um, at that time, um, I was playing a lot of XTC covers and Joe Jackson covers. You know, Look Sharp was our opening tune. We got through Look Sharp, and I think the second tune would have been Respectable Street or something like that. And some drunk ass, you know, comes right up to the front. He goes, fucking play respect and stop playing that other bullshit. And he chucks a bottle on stage and then it doesn't hit anyone, but it goes right by us. Uh, at that point, I just instructed the band, everybody turn your gear off. And I took the bottle and I chucked it back at him and I hit him. And then I decided, well, that's not enough. We might as well just have a good old fashioned fight here. Needless to say, the evening didn't go well from that point forward. I was told that I would be sued because I wasn't living up to the terms of the contract under which I had been booked. I told him to kiss my ass and sue me all you want. This is a bar that doesn't make more than $400 a night. You want to sue me? It'll cost you more than that just to find me. So um, I found that putting my mother's name in there, And that's just one of about a hundred examples sure. where it didn't go well. And usually in the small town where I lived, you have smaller minds and you have, it's quite easy to be a musician that's actually out doing something. But when you come home, all eyes on Ted, that's Aretha's son. 
and nobody's really paying attention to what I was doing artistically. Uh, there were no websites in those days. You know, there wasn't the internet for you to have a uh, foundational spot where people could go and listen to your music or anything. There's just Ted going out on the road, working very hard, uh, doing dates with the Verve Pipe, doing the Borders Tour, doing a Northern Michigan Tour, going across to England, working with Andrew Ferris, doing all these fantastic things. And you come home, all eyes on Ted. That's Aretha's son over there. You know, what does he do? I don't know, but he's Aretha's son. And that becomes the sum total that people think of you in those terms. And I didn't like that. I still don't like it now, uh, but it's, I'm at a different point in my life now. Um, I've grown up a bit. I've matured a bit. And I've had more than enough in the way of my own accomplishment. And uh, that's enough for me. Anyone who doesn't respect that, then they can just say what they want to say or think how they want to think from afar. Well, getting to your accomplishments then, because um, before we move to Solitaire, your upcoming album, uh, what I mm. find interesting then, how do you look back at your previous album, Gravity, now that you've made Solitaire? Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Gravity was a good prototype record for me. It allowed me and my writing partner and production partner, Dan Stecco, it allowed us to sit down and write some material. It allowed us to, at the time, learn how to run Pro Tools and early versions of Logic and how to record. Uh, at that time, the advent of drum loops were just coming on board and all these new technologies that are now a part of our everyday recording process. So we were kind of frontiersmen at the time. Yeah. And the record, we didn't even master the record because we didn't know anything about mastering. We didn't know that that existed, but we knew that we were able to get things recorded and we were able to start structuring songs. And I was learning how to sing a little bit and thinking not just in terms of being a guitar player, because that's in essence what I was. And I was a rhythm guitar player. So this idea of writing songs initially was unheard of in my mind. This idea of singing definitely wasn't going to happen. You know, I could barely do backgrounds at the time, but I was starting to learn and grow and I was getting more comfortable with the idea of being a front man and knowing that I had something to offer. Uh, in its, in its early initial phases, that album, Gravity, um, it's not a bad record. I still cringe a bit when I hear it because if I were to take the same batch of songs right now and sit down in the studio right now, they would be written a little differently and they'd be recorded a little differently. There'd be a lot more... Uh, 
I don't want to say quality. There'd be a lot more texture mm. and a lot more uh, sonic viability to that record. But things happen the way they happen for a reason. And that album was supposed to be kind of a, a learning stepping stone for me. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, not having the album mastered. And, and over the years, obviously, you've learned a lot about being in the studio and uh, production techniques and mastering and all, all that kind of stuff. So did you make it a concerted effort to, to focus on those textures now for Solitaire then? Oh, yeah, all that stuff now. It's just, it's, it's a given. Um, you know, I got every trick in the book now. I love, <laughs> I have a, I've started to develop my own sonic personality. Um, you know, it's easy for me to, to go, wow, if I didn't know myself and someone said, hey, have a listen to this, I go, oh, yeah, that's Ted. You know, I can hear there's certain things that I like to do now. Um, in the same way, it reminds me early on, um, Trevor Horn, who was one of my favorite producers. And I can take a listen to things like what he did with Grace Jones and Sly and Robbie, that entire album, that Slave to the Rhythm package that they put together. You can listen to that. I'm like, that's Trevor. You know, I, there's certain sonic things that he does that I go, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So I've been able to develop a couple of those myself now. This might be difficult to describe them, but... Um... And then you've talked about uh, gravity in previous interviews where you mentioned that was a lot more guitar based than what you're uh, working on now. Um, yeah. so, so, so how would you describe that musical identity? Because your approach, I would say, is probably very eclectic at the moment. It's very eclectic. It will always be. Okay. Uh, but again, as I've become a better producer, it'll always be eclectic, but it will be honed in a bit more. Um, Back then, again, I was just a guitar player. I couldn't believe that we could actually record something and it would come out sounding pretty decently. Uh, and again, it was very guitar-based, which meant pull the vocals back, push the guitars up, you know, and it, I had a typical guitar player's ear back then. Um, I, I liked to hear a lot of treble in everything. You know, I can remember playing a couple of tracks for that uh, that were on that album. I played for um, Rob Ferboni, who was the front of house man and engineer for Rolling Stones. And I said, what do you think of it? He says, sounds like a bunch of fucking treble. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. Well, I better pull the treble back. <laughs> That's all he said. He didn't say anything about the songs. He didn't say anything about the songwriting. He was like, it just sounds like a bunch of fucking treble. <laughs> But it's, it's good that you have people to, who can, because I, I imagine you mentioned a, a couple of people that you've opened for and, and you've, you've played in your mother's band for a long time. You've played uh, with all kinds of people over your career and all kinds of musicians. Is there yeah. maybe one, one thing you can share that, you, that you've taken from one of these musicians or may, maybe that you've learned by, by working with them or seeing how they did it? Well, I think that uh, well, one of the people that does come to mind is probably unknown to most listeners and readers. H.B. Uh, Barnum is his name. He served as the uh, musical conductor for my mother's group uh, long before I came on board. And I was out there with her for 30 years. H.B. had to have been with her for 40 easily. Um, 
But basically what I learned from H was how to really conduct myself in the midst of sometimes chaotic situations and how to keep your head and how to maintain some dignity and how to also know where the exit is when it's time to leave a performance or leave a project, but also how to address situations without being irate and without adding more dynamic tension to a thing. Um, and uh, also one of the things that he impressed upon me was, uh, you know, there's going to be times when you're out here, you're going to be working with some personalities that are extreme. And if you're going to come out and serve as a guitar player, or if you're going to work in any capacity with sometimes egotistical people or people that are frantic or people that are schizophrenic in the way that they handle their business. He says, you have to think of it this way, have a job that you can go home to. And if you're going to come out here, hopefully things will run smoothly, but you can't come out here and expect this to be the bill payer. You have to come out and think of this as the icing on the cake. But meanwhile, you're meeting potatoes that's waiting for you when you get home. And if you have that dynamic in your life, you won't get so upset about whatever the hell it is. And he was right. Cause I was depending on, you know, at certain points I was just trying to make it the bill payer and the career early on. And it just wasn't possible. So it's very interesting because it's, it's very similar advice uh, as, as uh, the one your dad gave you, where you need mm -hmm. to have that foundation and, and not be reliant on this, this risky endeavor. Um, right. Which right. Is, yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, I don't know much about solitaire. I, I heard uh, Speed of Life. Um, Mm -hmm. so let's let's get into that song a little bit especially the production because one thing i think about your music and uh perhaps it's it's just just the quality of your voice as well but it feels very warm it feels very uh full uh is, is that something you you look for in your music what what, what were you looking for and especially with uh, speed of life what what kind of textures were you looking for well that was kind of the beginning of a production style it's actually you're going to hear speed of life it's going to be included again okay. on solitaire uh, but it won't be the same it's a wonderful track my wife and i and a friend of mine who lives in florida keith ragor uh, the three of us wrote that song and as far as the production it's lush but it's a little too lush mm. it's too much uh, so i'm opening those sessions again and again Now that I've had a chance to listen to that song, now that I've had a chance to grow, you know, it's just, it's overkill and lushness. Mm. So I'll strip it back a little and there'll be some string parts. But again, mm -hmm. I don't need it to be, you're drowning in lushness there. So fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's oh, sorry. going. Well, that's, it's, it's one of those songs. Uh, it's a landmark for me. I can remember sitting with my now wife in our uh, former home and listening in our, our home studio. And it's just about sunset and listening to that song and just thinking, wow, we created this. <laughs> this is our baby. And then sending the, the copyright 
stuff to uh, to Library of Congress and setting up the publishing. I just remember thinking, wow, this is pretty landmark stuff here. That's very good to hear. Um, final question. You've been very generous with your time, so thank you. Um, oh, no, no problem. There is a, there's one song, uh, I believe, on the album, Until You Come Back to Me. Uh, why this specific song? What does this, uh, what kind of meaning does this song hold for you? That song was, um, will always be very, very special to me. It's a song that originally belonged to Stevie Wonder. He wrote it. He recorded it in the early 60s. It went nowhere. Somewhere along the line, he had the bright idea, and he uh, spoke with my mother about it and sent her his version. It sparked something in her. She went in and re-recorded it. It became a big hit within the Black community and throughout the country at that time. I'm not speaking about large commercial success when we think of some of her other tunes that ultimately were propelled to the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about, uh, at the time, the United States primarily and some Northern Soul, you know, UK Northern Soul, um, they would know about that song and Black community knew about that song. Um, it's what we call old school. And so she made a very good hit out of it. Uh, I happened to go with her to the studio the day that they were recording that. And I had an opportunity to meet Donnie Hathaway, who played piano on it. I'd never been in a recording studio before. So it was just eye-opening for me. Just amazing. It was like going to Disneyland or something, you know. And to sit there as a kid, and I was about 10, I think maybe 9 or 10. And to be able to go in and just sit in the in the control room and again watching all these dials and buttons and trying to figure out I'm trying to figure out who does what and why is that sound coming out like that and and then uh, I went and sat in the live room while my mother was uh, tracking the piano and I got to sit next to her and when they were putting down her vocal uh, I'm still sitting there and so they're doing the uh, the first take and she starts singing and I coughed. And the tape stopped. And I thought, oh, that's it. I broke it. I broke the damn recording session. So <laughs> everyone chuckled. Of course, it was no big deal. Um, so that song has that sort of memory for me. Uh, I always enjoyed performing it in concert over the 30 years that we were out there. Um, of course, you look forward to performing Respect. Of course, I look forward to doing... Uh, Rock Steady, because uh, I got to sing on that, you know, VH1 Divas performance. Yeah. Not to mention, it's, just, it's an up-tempo, you know, it's high-energy thing. Um, but then we get to Until You Come Back to Me. And I always loved playing that, you know, on show. Um, and I put a reggae feel behind it when we were playing it live, which felt perfect. <laughs> it felt perfect with the track. It's like, uh, let's see here. I can remember... Um, we would have been in the key of let's see it. Uh, we moved it up so. I think we were doing it here ultimately so instead of going I see the way in 
instead of playing smooth like that, I started playing. And it worked so well with the rest of the group. It felt very natural. And I have my wife to thank for that. She's a, a big reggae listener and aficionado. So she's the one that brings that reggae into the, you know, that flavor is in a lot of my stuff now because of her. And then I'm sure the sunshine of South Florida doesn't, doesn't hurt either. Hey, I can get a tan down here. <laughs> <laughs> well, one last thought then. Um, when do you hope, because like uh, you just mentioned, you, you uh, are looking to go back into the studio and, and, and tinker a little bit more to see, to see uh, what you can do to, to uh, make the songs a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. What are you looking towards uh, when, when you want to release that? Do you have a, a time frame in, in mind? And it's still obviously a very uncertain world at the moment, but do you have kind of a time frame in mind? We're shooting for March the 25th. Uh, because that's the birthday of both my mother and my father. And that seems like a, an ideal time to, to drop a record. Whether we'll be able to meet that or not, only time will tell. But that's a perfect target. You know, that's a perfect target. Sounds good, Teddy. Uh, my parents, uh, they were 10 years apart. So this will be my mother's 80th and it would have been my father's 90th. Well, let, let me ask you one thing. It just popped into my head earlier, and if you don't want to answer it, it's, it's, it's fine. But you, you mentioned sitting beside your mother singing uh, when she was singing in, in the studio and those kind of things. What was your impression of what she did? Especially early on as a kid, did you have some, some sort of, uh, did you know kind of how, how special it was? No. Um, to answer your question, she did what she did, and it was quite natural, and uh, it, it was having a huge impact on the world, but when you're around it, it's just what is. Right. It's quite simply what is. You know, you never think of it. As I grew up and as I started to become a producer and as I started to come into my own as an artist, then when you put these ideas under a microscope and listen, you go, wow. I can't do that. And I've never met anybody else that can do that. You know, that's, and you go, that's amazing. And on, she was also a one take wonder. Mm -hmm. She would do a lot of these sorts of things, just uh, something that it might take somebody a day or two to rehearse and to try and do something. She would just do it. It was just natural. You know, she had a, a God given talent, you know, truly a God given talent. And the world is a better place because of it. I think um, on, on that note, Teddy, uh, thank you so much again for taking the time. Uh, is there anything you would, you would like to mention uh, before we uh, we end here? Because I, I do know you have your Think Radio, uh, which which uh, you radio. Create. Yes, we would like to see some listeners over there. Uh, we're uploading a lot of new material in 2022. I also have a series of interviews that I'm doing. Uh, called All the Queen's Men. I'm interviewing the members of the Aretha Franklin group, and we're talking about our experiences, you know, 30 years out there on the road. And also, a lot of these people work with other people, so we'll be talking about their experiences as well. So be nice to uh, send some folks over to Think Radio, and also, it's always good to stop by teddyrichards.com. Excellent. 
Teddy, thank you so much. Robin, you have a good day, man. God bless, right. brother.